You know, one of the great things about this project and this book was that it inspired a, a whole flurry of other projects at the New York Times. Folks realized that the archives, there's amazing stuff down there. And it, I think, helped inspire reflection about what else has been missing. That's Rachel L. Swarns. She's one of the editors of the book Unseen, Unpublished Black History from the New York Times Photo Archives. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Although the New York Times had, until very recently, thought of itself as a newspaper driven by text rather than images, unlike the tabloids say, it also had a staff of top photographers who would go out and document stories, taking pictures of the famous and sometimes the not-so-famous to augment a print article. Needless to say, the vast majority of these photos never saw the light of day. They were consigned to the archives, also known as the morgue. Editors would make decisions about what photos to run based on many factors, deadlines, layouts, changing storylines that could make a picture irrelevant. Stories were sacrificed for ad revenue. And sometimes there was an ingrained bias that marginalized the stories of African Americans. Unseen is a deep dive into those archives. Based on a month-long series that ran in the Times three years ago during Black History Month, Unseen recovers photos of well-known figures and ordinary people and gets at the stories behind the pictures and their consignment to the morgue. Two of the four editors of Unseen are joining me. Rachel Swarns was a correspondent for the New York Times for 22 years and is now a contributing writer for the paper and a professor at New York University. And Darcy Evely was first a staff picture editor at the Times for almost 13 years and is now a contributing picture editor to the paper. And as the picture editor, Darcy was involved with the project that became Unseen at its inception. She explains its beginnings. This book came about when one of our co-authors and, and I, uh, Dana Kennedy, we sat down and we were deciding on what to do for Black History Month. And Dana proposed the question to me asking if there was something that we could do from the Times' photo archives and see if we can come up with some, some photos, some stories for the paper. So then how did you even begin this process? What happened was uh, we came up with a list of, of regular people that, that most people would know in relation to black history. I started with Martin Luther King, and we went, uh, and I found the most published photograph that we had of Mr. King, which was a portrait of him. And looking back at that photograph, I pulled the negatives from it, thinking that I would see a portrait sitting. And in fact, that wasn't the case. What I found instead was uh, Dr. King had gone to a political event that day, and the photographer had stepped up and taken a photograph of him in the middle of the event. And the next day in the newspaper, there was a front page article, but no photograph. It turns out that after Dr. King left that event, he also attended another political event at a church. He was, upon leaving, then attacked. He was egged by, by protesters out in front of the church. The photos that came back that day were, in fact, not of Dr. King at the egging. They were, in fact, they were portraits and at this, at this political event. So the pictures were not appropriate. I see. It was the wrong picture for the story that ended up running, which was about the egging of Dr. King. And there were no photos of that. Yes. 
And once we found that particular image, we found that this might work. Let's go back and investigate all of the photos that we ran and uh, see what else we can find in the history. Rachel, how did you get involved with the project? We started this process. We had some big names. We had uh, Martin Luther King. We had Rosa Parks. We started looking to think about history and African-Americans and who else might be in our archives. And one of the really fascinating things uh, was we also started to think about how we as an institution covered and didn't cover the African-American community. And, and this became clear once we started looking for a broader list of names. We discovered some amazing photos that had never appeared before. And so we started asking ourselves, why hadn't they appeared? We also discovered that many notable people who we thought should have been photographed by our staff photographers, people like W.E.B. Du Bois, Romare Bearden, Richard Wright, just simply had not been photographed by our staffers. And so that led us to think about why that was. Um, and what we had to acknowledge in some instances was that the institution, which was part of a larger society that marginalized African Americans, was also part of that process. And, you know, that was something that newspapers and large media organizations don't often do. Of course, it was also complicated because the New York Times wasn't always a, an institution that made its name publishing beautiful images. Images weren't really that important. It was the words that really mattered. And so there were also instances where maybe they just didn't have space. And so we were kind of wrestling with all of those questions. How many pictures are we talking about that you had to go through? Oh, we went through millions and millions of photographs. The Times' archives are enormous. Uh, it, it consists of multiple collections. There's a print photographic collection, which they believe to be somewhere around 6 to 10 million images. Uh, not all staff. I think the latest number was about 3 million of those print images were staff pictures. There's also a negatives collection, and the negatives were what we used to produce this project. The negatives, they know they have approximately 260,000 sacks of negatives. That means in each sack... Oh. <laughs> yes. In each sack, that can mean one roll of film, or it could mean several hundred rolls of film. So it's hard to say, but their estimates have, I've heard estimates anywhere from you know, 40 million to 60 million or more, up to 100 million. Some people say 400 million photographs. They just don't know. But there are numerous, numerous, numerous photos. And the collection generally spans from um, the early part, the prints from the early part of last century, possibly a few from uh, the late 1800s. And the negative collection is pretty well intact from about the 1950s to the digital age. And there is a good sprinkling of negatives from the 1940s in the, in the early 1950s. How organized is it? It's very organized, but it's organized in, in sort of a way that you have to have some research in order to go find it. Um, <laughs> it's it's um, organized chaos, let's just say. I'm going to say Darcy's being very generous. It was exciting. And one of the things that was challenging was that, you know, sometimes you wouldn't find something because there is a system, you know, to an organized-ish system, and it's not there. And then Darcy was looking someplace else, and, and, and there it pops up. So it was, um, it was quite a process. 
We have a very good example of something like that. There's um, some photos that we we were looking for. I think Sidney Poitier was one. Sidney Poitier, actually. We couldn't find him initially. Mm. And then we found the photographs by accident looking in uh, another area. That happened quite often. Well, we talked about some of the reasons why the photos you've chosen hadn't been published. And I would think another reason would be deadlines, because it's not like digital photos today, then they had to be developed and edited and printed while a paper had to go out at a particular time. We have a very good example of that. There's there's some photos in the book of Merle Evers, and they were at her husband's funeral in Washington, D.C. And very quickly, Medgar Evers was an African-American civil rights activist in Mississippi. He worked for the NAACP, and he was assassinated in front of his home in 1963. That's right. Yes. And the, the next day in the New York Times, beautiful photographs, but they were wire photos. And at the same time, our staff photographer, George Thames, was at the funeral. He was right with the family, and he had dozens and dozens and dozens of rolls of some of the most beautiful film I had seen. And we couldn't quite understand why the next day the New York Times ran with the wire images. They weren't better. So we came to a few conclusions. It, it was possible that the film didn't arrive in New York on time. Or another explanation just might be that George mostly uh, worked for the magazine. And was he there photographing this as a feature for the, for the New York Times magazine and not, in fact, for the newspaper? Another example of how technology has changed things, and this is perhaps a reason that might have affected why some photos didn't appear. For instance, um, we have an amazing photo of um, Malcolm X's house in Queens after it was firebombed. It's so dramatic. Our photographer got into the house, and we were looking at it and thinking, goodness gracious, how could you have left this out? It's not that the Times didn't know about the firebombing. We wrote about it, and there was a wire photo that ran of him leaving his car, getting out of his car. But the conclusion we came to was that perhaps in a newspaper, those dark tones, which look so dramatic today, might have just been kind of washed out and really hard to look at and even to see and make sense of when you're dealing with ink. That makes perfect sense. You know, the pictures seem to fall into maybe three categories. No photos at all were used, although the story itself ran. And then other photos were used and the story ran. And then no photo and no story. Absolutely correct. One of the good examples of some photos ran, I guess, you look at, there's a series of photographs of Harlem taken by Don Hogan Charles, who was a staff photographer. In fact, he was the first African-American staff photographer. And he did a beautiful essay of Harlem back in the early 1960s. Well, Don went out for an entire weekend. He came back with more than 100 rolls of film. And the next Monday morning in the paper, there were six photographs that appeared in the Times. And that, that was a lot for the day. That was a big photo essay. <laughs> Unlike today, where you can have hundreds and, and dozens published in the paper, to publish six at that time, I think, was kind of a big deal. Well, Don shot more than a 1,000 frames, and they were beautiful. So the fact that they put six in left almost a 1,000 to still publish. And so we look at that. Somebody had said to us at one point, boy, we could make a whole book just of that, that weekend, and it's true. So it's a good example of sometimes there was too many. One of the things we discovered, too, was that there were these amazing photos of ordinary people. Don Hook and Charles 
his portraits of folks in Harlem, just people living their lives, African-Americans living their lives, those were some of the loveliest photos that we have. I completely agree. Well, I had an enormous amount of sympathy for you because I was marking pictures, you know, because I'll want to talk about a few. And then I'm looking at like the 80 gazillion post-its I have in the book. And it's just like, uh, how did they ever decide what pictures went into this book? Because I can't even decide which ones to talk about. But Don Hogan Charles, I kept flagging photo after photo of his. His scenes of everyday life, I think, are so beautiful. I would jump all over a book of his. <laughs> Let's hope we can publish one one day. <laughs> There's enough material. But another example of, of pictures that say, why weren't they used? There was, there's a series of images of Reverend Kendall Smith burning a Confederate flag at City Hall in New York. And the stories in the paper talked about how Reverend Smith was relatively upset with uh, a few uh, school-based issues in New York City. And he took a Confederate flag down uh, to the City Hall, walked to City Hall Park, and lit it on fire. And that was in the late 1960s. Yes. And the photographs that we found showed, I don't know, maybe a half a dozen people standing around, um, some pigeons, uh, two police officers. It was a very, very quiet scene, as you can see in the photographs. The reverend was arrested for inciting riot. Clearly, those photographs don't show any riot taking place. Well, the Times continued to write stories about this, this incident. And it turns out, one of the final stories that they published about it was how he got off. He got off on a technicality. We have to wonder, had the Times published those images, would this case have gone away any earlier? But they never did. And all we can figure as to why was that when I looked at the pages of the Metro section where the story ran, they were filled with advertising. There was no room for the photos. And the stories ran in single columns down the side of the page. Yeah, I completely forgot, of course, advertising. Advertising took up so much of the visual space in the paper in those days. How did you get the history behind each photo? To find out the stories behind the photos, we, we also did a lot, a ton of research, really looking at the images and trying to see um, what was happening then and, and what we could bring to our readers and our viewers about what was happening here and what was the story behind the story. And a good example of that is the lovely photo we have of Lena Horn. Lena Horne, of course, you know, one of the biggest stars of her day, uh, appeared in the New York Times because she had a, a new TV show running. And we ran a tiny little headshot photo of her. And the photo itself turned out to be this beautiful, one of the photos anyway, turned out to be this beautiful photo of her in her apartment that we had never published. And in digging into that story, it turned out that Lena Horne, back in the 50s and 60s, had trouble finding an apartment because no matter how famous you were, if you happened to be African-American in New York City, getting an apartment was not an easy thing to do. And so we dug into that story and, and found out that her good friend, Harry Belafonte, also a huge superstar, also could not find an apartment. And he got so frustrated that he ended up buying a building and putting some of his friends inside, including Lena Horne. So we used the images as a starting point um, to bring people in and, and to tell stories that may have been forgotten or people were unfamiliar with. Right, to illustrate the times in which the photograph was taken. That's right. 
And and one thing I wanted to mention too was that there are a couple of instances where when we looked at the photos that were not published and the ones that were, that really raised the question of was racism involved here or bias involved here? Um, And again, it's always hard to say. None of these editors are around anymore. We can't really ask them. And a good example of that is one of Arthur Ashe. Yes. Arthur Ashe, of course, the, the tennis player, he won a match. He was the underdog, won this match. And, and the photos that we ran were both of the guy who lost. And two photos of him. Now, <laughs> and two photos of him. And now the photos were kind of dramatic. Well, one was dramatic, but come on. That photo of Arthur Ashe, it's an action shot. He's stretching out to return the ball. It's gorgeous. <laughs> exactly. It has him almost airborne. And, you know, it was hard to figure out why, even if you wanted to uh, run the kind of dramatic photo of the of the white guy in defeat, why you wouldn't have run the photo of the black guy who won. You've mentioned that this book comes from a month-long blog series on published black history. Can you describe... What happened in that series and also the kind of feedback that you got and how that feedback might have framed the way you did this book? You know, it was really remarkable. You know, we basically sat down and and put together an image or several images for every day of the month of February for Black History Month. What year was this? 2016. And from the beginning, we really wanted it to be a project where readers and viewers engage with us about the images and about the history. And so we started out that way. You know, we had a couple of images where we had questions that we posed to our readers. Some of them we knew the answers to. Some of them we didn't. We had a photo of Jackie Robinson, uh, who was addressing a class at City College. And there was no real description of what he was doing there. And so we put that out to our viewers to say, hey, were you there? Are you in the audience? Tell us about this. The response was really, really remarkable. I mean, we had people writing to us, emailing us, calling us. And it actually in some ways shaped the project to a certain degree. You know, one of the photos, a lovely photo of two children, one black, one white, in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, in a classroom. We posted that photo and people asked us, wait a second, but who are these kids? What, what happened to them? And we were like, yeah, what happened to them? And we asked people, we asked anyone, you know, folks reading this, do you know any of these children here? And we were able to find the little girl, now a grown woman, who shared her story. But I also think people really related to the fact that the New York Times was taking this step, that as an institution, we were looking at the past and not only at what we publish, but what we left out and, and, and thinking hard about why we might have left those things out. Why did you decide to move the blog series into a book form? There was no question about it. People were asking us, how do we get these photos? <laughs> it was remarkable. Like, how do we get these photos? I mean, I think within a couple of weeks, right, Darcy? I mean, oh yes, we, we were like, you know, there's a book here. The demand was enormous. And you added photos from the blog series, but then you added more. 
Yes, we had so many. And we even had to leave some out of the book. But um, the goal was really to just keep building upon this project. And I think all of us on the team, while we wanted to keep some elements from the blog series in the book, I think we really wanted to see what else we could find. And it, it became so much richer. The book was so much better than the blog series in the end. I like that blog. I followed that blog. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> How did you organize the book? What was the thinking behind it? Well, I think one of the things that we really wanted to do, and this this happened naturally, as we said, we started off with the famous people. What was happening is we were finding images of ordinary people. And the balance of that became so special. And it even became more interesting to us, finding the people that were not famous who got left out and got left out for all sorts of reasons was fascinating. So as we started to lay it all out, we as we built categories, correct, Rachel? We thought, well, we should have some musicians and we should have some actors and we should have politicians and religious leaders and really try to balance it, the walk of life, men, women, everybody that we could think of. But this, ultimately, to make the cut, the story had to be fascinating. And we wanted there to be some surprise. We didn't, you know, we didn't want to have a book where you had sports, movies, church. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. We wanted for the book to be a real experience for people and that you turn the pages and you don't know what you're going to see next. And of course, there's an index if you want to go back and, you know, look for someone in particular, you can do that. But we liked the almost serendipitous experience that there was in in discovering these, we wanted to give our readers and viewers a, a taste of that. Each photo is accompanied by a story. It could be a commentary, it could be a little history, but it's about that photo. And you have a wide range of people contributing, including some of the subjects themselves. Absolutely. We tried to get as many living subjects as possible to talk to us, and almost everybody did. And there were some wonderful, wonderful stories that came out of them so unexpected. I think one was uh, Andrew Young, who who told a, a very funny story that we didn't we expected something about his his mission at the United Nations, and and he did tell us that, but he also told us how he immediately recognized the photograph when he saw it because of the suit that he was wearing, and he told us this wonderful story of the custom made suit, which was wasn't written anywhere, so we got new information from people. It was fun. It was it was it was wonderful stories, fun writing. And uh, wonderful to talk to these these people. I wonder, as you looked through these, what surprised you? Oh, that's a good question. I think the amount, the amount of work that was left behind, the amount of things that were left out, the amount of stories that felt like they were partially told. And maybe they were partially told because they weren't complete at the time. They didn't know the full story. But I think to really give an example, there's an image of Medgar Evers, in fact, where Claude Sitton, who was a reporter, was down south covering Medgar Evers at the time. And Claude was using his camera to take reporting notes. And the photos he took of Evers never appeared in the paper. And we found them. And in fact, the Times had never published its own photographs of, of Evers. And we think this might, in fact, be the only photograph that was ever taken of Medgar Evers by a Timesman. And when we look at that, now it seems of such importance. But at the time, before his assassination, he wasn't a big name in the New York Times. We had very, very little writing on him. 
And so I think maybe the surprise for me comes when you're so surprised that we didn't publish it, but then you realize it wasn't until later on that it became such an important event. Of course. When news becomes history, you see what remains. What surprised you, Rachel? You know, I think I guess I was surprised by what wasn't there. I think that as a journalist, mostly, you know, we're thinking about how we can cover things and and, and, and how we can bring things to life, both in print and in photographs. And for me, as an African-American journalist, I think it was a reminder of how the media, of which I am a proud <laughs> part of, was also involved in a big way in the marginalization and the erasure of people. It was part of an establishment that was marginalizing African-Americans in, in many different ways. Of course, I know that. This, this made it real in a different way. You're both journalists. You're a text journalist, and Darcy, you're a, a photographic journalist. Has it changed the way you think about your own work or the way you approach your work? Absolutely for me. I think it's made me a much, much more careful editor, picture editor. I really think about, especially with big stories, about what sort of impact this is going to have on the future. Nowadays, as a, as a visual journalist, we have so many opportunities to run multiple images with the story. Uh, and I try to, with my edits, uh, more carefully balance my, my presentation visually and really to think about the future and how this is going to be perceived. Anything I do is going to be perceived in, in years to come. And what about you, Rachel? You know, one of the great things about this project and this book was that it inspired a, a whole flurry of other projects at the New York Times. Folks realized that the archives, as Darcy has long known, there's amazing stuff down there. And it, I think, helped inspire reflection about what else is has been missing. And, you know, there have been other projects since then using the archives. There's this whole overlooked series about obituaries of folks whose deaths simply weren't recorded, even though they were notable women or notable people of color. That's a wonderful outbirth, I think, of, of some of the work that we did. Do you almost see this as unseen volume one and, and feel like you could go on and do more with this? Or are you willing to pass it on to someone else and, and move on to something else? I hope this is just volume one. <laughs> I would love to do more of it. Yes, absolutely for me. I was just wondering, do you really want to go down that rabbit hole with me? I am sort of obsessed with archival work. Um, it's kind of most of what I do now in terms of looking at history and its reverberations in the present. So I could happily spend and am happily spending much of my time diving into history. Darcy found these amazing images, and it's a way to connect with history in a very different way and in a way that's really powerful for people. And the process itself was, was really powerful for me. And that's a good place to leave it. Rachel Darcy, thank you so much. It was a wonderful blog series, and it really is a great book. Thank you very much, and yeah. thank you for having us. Great to be here. Thank you so much. That was Darcy Evely and Rachel Swarns. They're two of the editors of Unseen, unpublished Black history from the New York Times Photo Archives. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcast, and leave us a rating on Apple. It helps people to find us. 
For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.